Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview and I've got Skip Montragon with me. Skip is a depression warrior and he truly is a warrior and he truly has had as battled the demons of depression and is now on a journey where he has written a book to share his experiences and the lessons he has learned. And I've had the honor of reading that book. And I knew I had to get this guy onto my show because it is just so beautifully, beautifully logically uh, placed and written. Uh, it was a joy for me to read it. And I thought, now we need to bring this guy on. So Skip, thank you so much for coming onto my show. It's been, it's my delight, Stefan. Mm. I feel like we are already bosom buddies here, kindred <laughs> spirits. Well, we are, aren't we? Because we are, we are both in a medical field. We both have been uh, in generations where for, for many, many decades, uh, emotions were not something to be proud of. On the contrary, you were, you were taught how to be a man, a real man. Who doesn't show emotions right. whilst I was I was never in that extreme if you cry you're a girl kind of thing um, it wasn't this bad but it was not far off either uh, in my upbringing and to a certain degree I must say I, I'm a child of the 80s when when I look at my forming years when I look at my heroes on on the screen it was Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon down and out policeman, drinking far too much, smoking. Uh, it's that kind of a thing. The Bruce Willis, the Die Hard, was always the, the kind of anti-heroes that I aligned with. So it was, it was macho, macho, macho. That's, that's how I wanted to be. And that's, I guess, the, the kind of upbringing I had. And I never learned about emotions, that funny thing. And reading your story, you have got a story that is very physical, very, very uh, out there in leadership as well as in, in, in exercise. Tell us a bit, how did it all start with you when you were uh, a boy and then becoming a young man? What was your journey then? I grew up in a very chaotic family. My father came back from the Korean War, a broken man. My aunt, his older sister, and my older cousins, they tell me the man that went to war was not the man that came back. He was in and out of VA hospitals, veterans administration's hospitals for, obviously for veterans. The official diagnosis they gave him was schizophrenia, my mother tells me, but based on his behavior, I believe he was bipolar and would become psychotic, meaning lose contact with reality, what we would call crazy, mm. and go off on drinking binges, gambling, gamble the car away. He'd be gone days at a time. We wouldn't know where he was at. Uh, but when he'd come home drunk, because uh, he's also an alcoholic, and he was a mean, abusive alcoholic. And I didn't find out till I was well into my 30s how abusive he was towards my mother because she never talked ill of my father. Mm. 
she would just simply say, your father is ill because he was gone. Um, most of what I could remember of my childhood. In fact, I have almost no memories. I have a couple fleeting memories before the age of seven. So I know from what I remember and what I've been told, very traumatic, chaotic. That being said, he, we, my older sister, my eldest sister, Roma tells us we would run and hide when my father would come home because we didn't know which father was coming home, the loving, kind, gentle father or the mean, angry, abusive father. He struggled with this. I'm also sure he struggled with PTSD. And my mother says, in addition to this, he'd go at times, he'd go into the room. And I do remember one occasion when he visited that he was in the bedroom smoke chain smoke cigarettes camels i remember he had stains on his fingers right here between his two fingers and room dark and wouldn't come out of that room days and days on end so i realized you know much in retrospect that he was depressed during the time all that being said he was ill so it was chaotic we moved a lot i was small for my age. <laughs> I mean, typically the smallest kid in the class. New kid on the block, moving a lot, don't have any friends. You're small, you're shy, you're awkward, physically inept. Okay, I grew, I was born in 55. So growing up in the early 60s in the public school system, physical prowess, being able to perform in sports. That was your capital on the playground. And I lacked any capital <laughs> whatsoever. And in fact, when you'd go out to play on the playground and they choose teams, uh, have to choose teams, I was the last one invariably chosen. And then this chorus would rise up. Ah, oh, why does he have to be on our team? Well, I failed miserably at anything I tried, be it baseball, gymnastics. I mean, I failed at tetherball. I was so bad. <laughs> but in eighth grade, I discovered wrestling. And it was the first time in my life that I thought, gee, I can be good at this. I think I can really be good at this. Mm -hmm. And so I started wrestling. But lest I forget, let me back up. It was also during that year that my biological father died. So he died at the age of 35. My mother had remarried the year before. <clears throat> he had moved from New Mexico back to Colorado. And my stepfather, my daddy, -o, was the most amazing man I have ever known. And... Then finally, we had some stability <laughs> in, in our lives. And thank goodness for my daddy. And bless God every day for bringing my daddy-o into our lives. See, I'm one of seven children. So when daddy-o married mom, eight children, and my little grandma, my abuelita, lived with us too. So he got a bonus package. <laughs> he loved us all. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so, so that being said, uh, wrestling. And so I had been bullied 
you know, all those years growing up. So I get into wrestling. Uh, and I was the only eighth grader to make the varsity team that year. Now, mind you, I didn't win any matches, but I bullies didn't bother me after that. Next year, I was actually the best wrestler in our wrestling room. <laughs> but I still didn't win any matches yeah. because I couldn't sleep the night before. I toss and I turn thinking about the match. And by the next day, I was so emotionally and physically exhausted, you know, I had to get out of the mat just thoroughly exhausted and couldn't perform the way I was capable of. But the summer after that, I won the first of many state freestyle tournaments, one of the Olympic styles, and continued to develop and grow, ended up as a two-time district champion, a state runner-up, and this was in what we call the schoolboy unique American style of wrestling, but had won many, many freestyle state championships, placed in two national freestyle uh -huh. uh, tournaments. So had a lot of accolades there, graduated as an honorable mention, All-American in wrestling. So had a storied career there. But fast forward to 19, no, 2012. So I graduated from high school, in 73. <laughs> Fast forward to, did a little, couple of years of college and I was a mediocre college wrestler at best due to a variety of reasons. Did a little wrestling after that where I did quite well. But fast forward then to 2012. I'm sitting in the state tournament, uh, Georgia High School State Tournament, my youngest son, the youngest of my four sons, Joey. He had finished his high school career and he had a very illustrious career and we were watching the state finals. And I picked up a magazine and looking at dates and there it shows the veterans wrestling. And down there, May 5th and 7th, 5th and 6th, Tucson, Arizona. So this is mid-February. And I said, Joey, I wanna compete in this. Will you help me train? He goes, okay, dad. Now, this is my 18-year-old son. Okay, dad. But you'll have to do everything I tell you. That's like mine. Yeah. Just us. Yeah. yeah. Now, tell me. I think your boys are what? 20 and 21? <laughs> no, 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 they're 18 and 19, 2020. 18 and yeah. 19. Uh, same. Same okay. year. <laughs> so, so what 18-year-old son would like to be able to tell his dad, okay, dad, but you're going to have to do everything I tell you. Exactly. <laughs> so, so how was so, your new trainer? <laughs> oh, my, he was great. So he is my trainer. He was my manager. He was my coach. And he was my training partner. Yes. And, oh, we had a great time. So I come home from practice and I was in great shape at that time. I was having very good baseline of fitness. I'd come home from practice and I kind of stumble in. It's like, ah, oh, honey, I, I think I'm going to go soak in a hot tub. And she'd look at me and kind of joke. All right, old man, have you had enough yet? Have you had enough yet, old man? No, no, not yet, honey. And then I'd sit on the couch and I'd have ice packs here on my elbow, on my shoulder, on my knee. And... <laughs> and the first six weeks I, I'd get up in the morning because I added a short uh, uh, workout in the morning just to boost my fitness but also to help me bring my weight down to my competing weight and my feet had hit the floor in the morning and it's like oh 
oh, I'm so sore. And I was like, all right, Skip, get up, get moving, get moving. And then about the six-week mark when I got up and it's like, ooh, I'm feeling good. And then I got outside where I do my routine. And I, man, I feel good. I feel really good. And I remember saying, son, you better bring your A game today because the old dad is feeling good. (laughs) (laughs) So we went to Tucson. Actually, let me show you. We won a national championship. Are you kidding me? (laughs) USA Wrestling, look at you. Fantastic. Wow. So how young were you at that stage? I was 56 years old. You bastard. You're in a bloody good shape. You bastard. (laughs) Oh, well done, you. Well done. Well done. That's all I can say. Because uh, there are so many reasons why I'm so proud of you without being condescending. Without being condescending. Uh, well done. It, because it no, takes guts. You. That takes guts to go out there. And I think that reflects your whole life. Here you were, small for your age, bullied, and then you found the outlet of wrestling, a very active and very, very uh, uh, competitive sport. And I must say that of all the fighters, I always treaded the little ones. Uh, I must <laughs> say, <laughs> you're so bloody fast. <laughs> so, uh, by the time I throw a roundhouse kick, he's gone. Yeah, that's right. It's right. So, no, no, honestly. Uh, this, um, so, yes, there is something to be said about that. But more importantly, so let's go back to when you were a youngster. So, you, okay. here we have got you defined as this, this, guy who lives and breathes wrestling and you did so throughout your life because mm-hmm. you were underplaying a bit your your thing you became wrestling coach and you were you were out there really helping others to make the best out of themselves through the medium of coaching so um but also you at some stage uh, looked at the military and decided actually mm-hmm. that could be something for me how did that come about I mean, here was your father coming a broken man out of the Korean War. Was that not a turn-off? Was that not, wow? Actually, it was not. And in retrospect, I think perhaps in part, it may have been that brokenness that played a role in it. All your life events, as you know, make us who we are. But that being said... I had received an, what we call an early admission to medical school. And I don't know back where you trained in Germany, if you had that or not, Stefan, but I received an early admission to medical school. So the, I actually received that notification in the fall before I would matriculate to, to medical school the next year. All right, cool. But that meant that with that early admission, that, so I could have, Apply to one medical school. If I got accepted early, that was the medical school I had to commit to. Mm. But see, I wanted to I wanted to stay where I was finishing up my undergraduate work at Old Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I had met my sweetheart, which is another story in <laughs> itself because I had no intention of being involved with a young woman. <laughs> oh, well, that being said, we <clears throat> were going to get married. But there was a problem. We wanted to be married. 
I needed to be able to support a wife. And how am I going to support a wife? Likewise, I wanted to go to medical school. How am I going to pay for medical school? I didn't want to go in debt. I didn't want to take out student loans. The Army, as with the other branches of the military, have what's called a health profession scholarship program. So full scholarship, books, tuition, fees, everything, plus a living stipend. It was pretty meager. I mean, it was... It was small, but enough yeah. combined with what my wife made for with her fellowship where she was doing her graduate training at the University of Tulsa, that with the two of those combined, we got by. Later, after we had our first son, and uh, he was born as a, as a preemie, small for gestational age, and then later diagnosed with a rare, rare, rare um, red blood cell aplasia, aplastic anemia called Black Van Diamond Syndrome, which you may be familiar with, but uh, uh, amongst the most rare of uh, these type of diseases. That being said, there were some outstanding bills. Now, we received a lot of professional courtesy because our insurance, as you might imagine, that we had didn't cover a lot of that, but there were still about $4,4500 outstanding bills. So we had to pay this. So they told Sherry, go down and apply for, I think it was Title IX or something like this. And so she did. Um, I don't know how I got off on this. Oh, I know. And, and so she dressed up, took her briefcase, all her documents, went down there, and the woman looking through all of this and said, Oh, gee, I see that you. You, you live under the pot. Po you're under the poverty level, <laughs> but because you don't have any indebtedness, you don't qualify for any help. And so she came home and told me that. I said, "Well, what's the logic behind that? We're responsible. We choose not to go in debt. Yeah. We live under the poverty level." But I, we, we would laugh and say, "Oh." You know, we're under the poverty of why, you know, yeah. we, I mean, we skimped, you know what it's like, you know, yeah. when you're getting started and third hand furniture, a lot of meatless meals and, <laughs> you know, you just do without, yeah. you know, we had one car for many, many years and I'd bum a ride to school or ride my bike and, yeah. you know, we got by just fine. Uh, we just did without, but, uh, <laughs> but we laughed and said, Below the poverty level, we didn't feel we were impoverished. I mean, uh, but why? Why the army? It was so that I could get married, and so I wouldn't come out of medical school with massive debts. That's why the army. Plus, I, I felt this kinship. Mm. I had uncles that had served in in World War II. Mm. I had an uncle who actually was captured by the Japanese. He survived the Bataan Death March only to die wow. in a concentration camp of malaria and starvation. I had uncles that served in Korea. Uh, I had a brother who had been in the Marine Corps, another one in the Navy. Uh, brothers. So when did you join? Uncles. Which time was that? I'm sorry. Which, when did you join? Which year? I came on active duty in 89. So... Eight. I, I had finished my, I finished a civilian residency. Normally, 
you would do graduate from medical school and then do a military residency. I just so happen to be in this cohort of HPSV students, health profession scholarship program students in the army, that they had far more applicants or mm-hmm. enrollees in the program that year than they had slots for internships. Mm. So I got a Dear John letter telling me, we are sorry to inform you, but you have not been selected for an army internship. I hadn't even looked at any civilian programs. Uh I, I was intent on going into the military at that point and doing a military internship. And here it is about six weeks left before Christmas time uh, there. So the the season was quickly closing there in terms of applying for internships. I had six weeks, we have a newborn baby. He's got all these medical problems. He came home on a a cardiac apnea monitor and had to be taking prednisone and and on and on, reflux medicine. And it, it was a nightmare. Uh, with that, he's still, you know, SGA and on and on, small for gestational age. So all these issues are going on. They just recently diagnosed his anemia and on and on. And so we're all stressed out because of this. We get this letter and it's like, are you kidding me? So I started making this massive there. And of course, those days you didn't have the internet. Everything, you know, was pulling out books, going to the library, doing these searches, picking up the phone. So I started looking at major metro areas that had different uh, programs where I could go to this city and that city and hit maybe three or four different programs in the city to interview at. And within six weeks, I, I visited, I don't know how many cities <laughs> did those and uh, we ended up in Canton, Ohio. And it just so happens the new incoming program director there happened to be a retired brigadier general, Dr. Andre Agnabin. And he had been former commander at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, this, what a coincidence. Just, just go figure. Yeah. Oh, perfect. And, and the most amazing bedside clinician an academician combined yeah. that I have ever known uh, that I had the privilege of working with yeah. just an incredible man we he intimidated me so horribly <laughs> that first many months I'd yeah, be in morning report or I'd be yeah, sign out rounds or noontime conferences and he'd ask me a question skip uh what do you think oh i so i'd come home and i tell i tell sherry oh my gosh he must think i'm the most idiotic intern he has ever seen in his life Uh uh-huh uh-huh oh dear did you ever talk to him afterwards? And did you ever? Oh my gosh! Him? Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> actually, actually, I was a transitional intern, so uh, you know, rotating through various programs. I started off with my first three months in internal medicine, and I had planned on doing the transitional year and then apply to do physical medicine rehabilitation uh, in the army, but. I really fell in love with internal medicine. 
but I had this question, can I be a good internist? So I actually went to talk with Dr. Ogden and we called him Dr. O or the big O. And, you know, we go in, Dr. Ogden you know, I made an appointment and he come in, come and scoop, you know, and, and what's on your mind? And I said, well, Dr. Ogden, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking about medicine, but I, I don't know if I could be a, I don't know if I could be a good internist. And he looked at me and said, Skip, I think you could be a good internist. I think you could be a very good internist. And we'd love to keep you in the program here. We could write letters of deferral and get you graduated through our program. Oh. Wow. <laughs> the big O was telling me this. Sure, I thought I was this giant screw up. Uh, mm. But, you know, that was the shot in the arm. and. Uh, we became good friends uh, later, and actually, he asked me to be a chief resident in my last six months in the program. But I had to defer. You know, we were getting ready to move. We had another new baby, and <laughs> I just couldn't do that to Sherry. And, sure. and also, I had to defer. But we became good friends, and we're good friends to this day. And so, but isn't it, isn't, it am, isn't it amazing how our mind? Uh, especially as as doctors, we are very prone to that. We we see one thing happening, and oh my God! And you don't see the nine hundred ninety nine good things that you have done, the the nice bedside manner that you had with this person who really needed it, the support that you gave that nurse uh, that just came naturally out of you, where he's you know stood behind the curtain and heard what you were doing. You don't see all that. But you see the one screw up where you're tongue tied <laughs> to the nth degree and you think, oh, my God. And that I know I know how many nights have I laid there like you and actually worrying about something I had said. One sentence, half a sentence I said, <laughs> and you get this kind of look and you think, oh, God, no, no, no. That's the end of me. And the reality is it is normal. We all are screw-ups. We all do make mistakes. And it is so important to embrace those mistakes. That is, I mean, for a long, long time, I've been teaching APLS, ACLS, uh, EMST, ATLS, you name it, any abbreviation of courses that teach doctors how to function under stress and in emergencies. Mm -hmm. That was my forte. I was, I was, I loved that. And we had that, I tried to drum that into my, my uh, trainees or consultants or specialists that came through. I said, this is a place where I want you to make mistakes. If you don't make mistakes here, you've failed the course, literally, um, because mm. then you don't learn. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And I think that is such a such an important mm. bit. It is normal to screw up, but it's not it's not okay to screw up again and again. You need to learn from your screw ups. And yeah. I think that was what what this guy saw in you. He looked behind behind the behind what you saw. You mm -hmm. saw your own mask. He saw the real you, mm -hmm. and that is cool. That is a real leader. So good old good old Doctor O. <laughs> yeah, he's an amazing man. He's he, <laughs> an incredible guy. So, and here you were. You, you're, you basically developed this love affair with internal medicine. Yes. Became a physician. And uh, how did that go as far as the military uh, went? Because the military was waiting for you. Um, right. Did they need... 
did they need physicians or did they? Oh were... my goodness, yes, they were waiting for me. So I graduated. And I was a little bit off cycle because I did the transitional year. So I graduated the normally would graduate July, start in July, end up graduating the end of June. I graduated then December of '88. So we left Canton, Ohio. It's very chilly, cold. Loaded up our car with, mind you, our three young children. <laughs> God. <laughs> Adam was four, Chris was two, and Angelie was four months old. So we loaded up the kids and we uh, moved to from now because I was on this scholarship, thank goodness. The army moved our household goods, as meager as they were. <laughs> they nevertheless moved those for us. And I had gone earlier to our first duty station, which was Lawton, Ohio, or Lawton, Oklahoma, rather, southwest uh, or southeast corner of Oklahoma. I had gone there and, and rented a home for us uh, ahead of time. So we, it was a door-to-door move and uh, goods were gonna be delivered. And we made our trek from Canton down to Lawton, Oklahoma, arrived there. It was a dreary, gray, cold day, January 3rd, 1989, that we rolled into town. (laughs) We knew two people. We knew my my sponsor and his wife, and my sponsor was going to be my internal medicine chief, and his wife, she was an obstetrician uh, gynecologist. They were both in the military, but they were the only people we knew when we rolled into town. And it's scary, isn't it? But I mean, let's also go a little bit further out here with our with our camera. Let's look at what the world was like at that time when you became an active uh, part of the military. Uh, at that time, the, the Warsaw Pact, the, the, the Russian Empire, the Russian might was crumbling big time, although it would be only in November of that year that the wall came down. Um, right. So you, you had no chance to know that. But and the reason I'm saying that is once the, the Russian might had crumbled, then in the next few years, there was all this, this, this what are we doing with our army and, and all the, the turmoil that happened there. Um, so we are beyond the, the Vietnam time. Right. Remember, guys, this was 75 when that sort of finished. Um, there was a, the height of the Cold War. And now the, the period of soul searching, and you—that's where you started uh, to come in. So there were no active wars; there were there were minor deployments right. uh, in in war zones around right. that time, but there was nothing big to write home about. So it was mainly being stationed in big bases and look right. after love after the people there, isn't it? Well, until ninety, until. Uh, 91, yeah, 92, right. Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Mm, exactly, exactly right. And that, in its own right, was the start of a, of a very strange time in the U.S. military. So you're right. So from Cold War, you suddenly went into the desert. Um, but Desert Shield and Desert Storm, I mean, this were very quick, 
very quick deployments. Um, uh, you, you, did you go with it? Were you deployed in, in country at that time? Yeah, so I was deployed with the 47th Field Hospital. Mm. And so basically, it almost took three quarters of the staff from Reynolds Army Community Hospital there at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. We, wow. we were what we call PROFIS. So we were assigned to this field hospital so that if they did deploy, we, you know, we went, that was our unit. Mm. And so we began training and within a few weeks, you know, so overnight, boom, mm. we're assigned to the 47th mm. field hospital. They're scrambling to get backfills, uh, reserve backfills to come in and fill our positions. And we are, taken out of our duties at the hospital mm. and we were uh, ready to go. And so we left in August, wow. uh, very uncertain times because we knew Saddam had uh, missiles and that they were chemical ready, you know, he had chemical weapons that was known. And we had trained a lot uh, in our so-called mop suits uh, to protect us. Yeah, many, many, many drills. And I can't tell you the number of times alarms went off and we put on our mop suits in very hot temperatures and, you know, would go to safe places, bunkers if you had them, other places where you could shelter and waited for alarms to go off. So uh, the 47th Field Hospital, we ended up in Bahrain, just across the causeway from Saudi. So that is where we uh, ended up uh, setting up our hospital. Huge challenge, huge, huge challenge for you as a man because there were three young kids at home and a wife and uh, all just finding their feet in the new environment. And you say, sorry, darling, um, I need to play in the big sand castle over there. Um, and how long did you get deployed? We were gone about seven and a half months. Mm. So we had been in the army just about a year, just mm. shy, not quite, well, a little over a year and a half that we had been active duty. And they came in and said, all right, you know, all this is going on and you're gonna, you're assigned to the 47th Field Hospital. And like I said, overnight, boom, you know, mm. we had orders to, mm. to report to the 47th Field Hospital. Uh, so about seven and a half months we were deployed, but we had had about three, about three and a half weeks or so train up time, getting ready. And uh, that last week, week and a half uh, before we finally flew out of the U.S., it was exhausting because we had at least three or four false alarms that we were leaving the country. So we had our oh, yeah. bags packed. That's right. And they said, "All right, we get the call." We're, we're leaving, and typically that, that never happens at a decent hour. <laughs> 2 a.m., you know, report it. Yeah, exactly. 4.30, you know, report yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, you know, 2 in the morning, all these crazy hours. So you get up, you say goodbye to your, your wife and your, you know, your, your kids, and you, you go and you wait a period of hours. Oh. No, we're not going to be able to get on that flight. You know, so you go home, you're exhausted, you know, emotionally. And after like the third time this happens, you're saying, please, please, please just send us. We're tired, you know. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that happened there with my, my wife and, and all were like, oh, just, just please let this finally be the time because we're <laughs> all of us in the 47th were like that. It's like, all right, enough of this. Just put us on the plane. Our families are exhausted. We're exhausted. Just send us, please. Is there any so <laughs> is there any soldier in this world, regardless from where, who hasn't experienced a hurry up and wait? Uh, ah. It is it is part and parcel of every large mobilization or even yeah. smaller mobilization. Oh yes. That's oh, yes. right. I went Perfect with the New way. Zealand Army. I went to uh, to uh, um, a humanitarian mission, and there we were. Oh yeah, it's all ready to go. Oh no, sorry, the, the aircraft is broken down, but another one is coming. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's okay. Tomorrow we go. Yeah. Oh no, 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 no. The next day we go. Next day we go. And it was just oh god. <laughs> so everyone knows that honestly. But I guess the point. Let's come back to your story because you are a man who is already in leadership roles. So you have basically created your, your own destiny uh, within the, the army. As a, as a doctor, you're already an officer. You therefore, you're in leadership. You control things. So you are in control. On the wrestling mat, you are in control as much as you can. Because you know, around you is chaos. So therefore, what we do create in such a situation, we look at the things that we can control and we will control them and we'll put standing operating procedures in there and things like that. So yeah. you are in control. Now, fast forward a little bit. You keep going through your life. You have got these amazing adventures that go through the military. You've got these personal adventures where you, you uh, learn a lot. And then... One day down the line, not so long ago, um, the world is suddenly no longer the same and it has nothing to do with any uh, dictator in some foreign land doing stupid things, but rather that the world turns actually quite dark for you. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Lights out, door locked, Lines drawn, phones turned off. I curled up under the desk of my office in a fetal position. Asking myself, Skip, what are you doing? How did you get here? What happened? And I was reviewing. Now, I'm a tough guy. I've endured a lot of things in my life. I've spent 37 months deployed, 30 months in combat zones, been in the army 25 years. I've been a national wrestling champion. On and on, I reviewed these things. I'm tough, what happened? And then I began to put the symptoms together, finally, admitting to myself, oh, it's horrible. Progressive insomnia, blue mood, relentless negative thoughts that played over and over in my mind, battering me, loss of confidence, indecision, shame, guilt, withdrawal, aches and pains that were magnified from my overuse injuries and old injuries from wrestling, 
and the osteoarthritis, libido, you know, decreased libido, decreased energy, um, anxiety, go into, uh, felt like my heart was doing this and I'd go to church and my voice would quiver and my hands would quiver and we'd sing and I think people are going to notice this and ask me, Skip, what's wrong with you? My cognition was off. I couldn't remember what I read five minutes before. I could recall certain medications or medical syndromes. I thought I was suffering pre-senile dementia to the point where I called the chief of behavioral health and explained and said, I'm worried. Did neurocognitive testing on me. Thank goodness it proved I wasn't suffering that and they attributed it to my insomnia and stress that I was getting out of the army soon and so forth. But I, I was really concerned and all these things finally put them together. And then after four hours, I admitted, Skip, you're depressed. Go get some help. April 17, 2014. I had hit rock bottom. All my toughness, my, my way of life, you know, that way that I did things, tough guy, gut it out, push through it. You know, that wrestler's mentality, that macho man mentality failed. I could no longer rely on that. I needed help. And I had to admit, I'm broken. I'm a wounded warrior. I cannot do this on my own any longer. And so I called the chief of behavioral health and asked if I could see somebody that day. And so I saw a clinical psychologist, and that started the long road to my recovery. That's if you go back with the, the hindsightogram uh, and actually look when did it start prior to you hitting that literally that fetal position under the desk. How, what were the earliest signs? How did it sneak up on you? You would have to go back and, and probably accumulated stresses in, in retrospect. I had been deployed, as I mentioned, 37 months, meaning you lose over three and a half years out of the life of your family. You know, the stresses and strains of medicine, traumatic events from childhood, Things that are so uh, repressed that I don't even have recollection of, of memories, uh, a variety of things. And my wife says I have a great capacity for to forget unpleasant things. She'll ask me sometimes, do you remember that big blow up we had about X, Y, Z? No, I don't. No, this type of thing. <laughs> good. So, so, so your brain is good in hiding and, and digging holes and covering them up. The problem, yes, of course, yes. is you're hiding, you're hiding a sore in your body. You're trying exactly. to sort of, you, you put the Band-Aids on and another Band-Aid right. and another exactly. Band-Aid. And it so, just keeps so going. So think about that. And, mm. you know, the, the people that you lose in war, the people that are, 
come back mangled, the people that are damaged, and you grieve for these these soldiers. You grieve for them, and 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 with that, it affects you. You know that. I know that. It the patients you lose that you take care of that wounds you. You carry that with you. And, and so all those accumulated, as I look back retrospectively, because I would have said, you know, I deal with that very well on an ongoing basis. Mm. But then what happened is I began to suffer that insomnia that just became compounded and worse. In fact, I was working with a psychologist on my insomnia starting the summer before. So starting back in June, July, I specifically began to work with this psychologist that was involved with this resilience resiliency program with the army specifically on my insomnia because it had just become it was rearing its ugly head and so i said i gotta get a handle on this and so we were working on a lot of different things but it just began to progress and progress the mood began to progress then i had set four i had three surgeries over seven months and why those surgeries over that time? Because I had neglected my own care. I'd put things off, taking care of other things, taking care of my department, taking care of the army, taking care of patients, taking care of all these other things. So I put things off and then it's like, okay, I'm gonna be retiring at the end of 2014. I need to take care of these things. So I had a, a graft of my uh, lower gum here from my upper pellet a hard palate, I had uh, a knee surgery, and then I had skin uh, scar resurfacing. See, you see some scars here where I was burned. Uh, as a young child, I suffered some burns. But that being said, each of those were fraught with complications. <laughs> <laughs> and they took me out of my normal routine for a period of several weeks. Uh, my eating, the way I would eat, the, my sleeping compounded that insomnia, my exercising, which I used to control my anxiety and help my, my mental outlook. So all of these things, just each time, it just threw everything out of whack. And so one surgery for about six weeks, things there. And so you're starting to recover from that. And then you have another surgery and it throws it out of whack. And you have, meanwhile, that my insomnia, my mood, my guilt, my shame, my indecision, my cognition, they're all progressively getting worse. And I remember telling my wife at the, right, right about Christmas time, maybe before or after Christmas, I think it was New Year's, uh, of uh, 2013, I told her, honey, I'm just utterly exhausted physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually. I, I am just utterly exhausted at this time, sweetheart. And uh, I, I remember saying that to her. I just, I was recovering from my knee surgery and I was just so, so, so weary at that time. So all those things compounded, caught up with me. And then you add to that the uncertainty of retiring from the army. So given my cognition, given my mood, given everything going on, all of our plans to prepare for retirement and our move to Texas to relocate back here 
looking for a job, applying for a license. Uh, those things didn't happen. So I didn't have my application for my Texas medical state license in. I didn't start applying for jobs till after we got to Texas. So life was in disarray, if you will. And, and so those were many of the factors leading up to my depression and where I ended up under the desk. And part of it was certainly that denial that I was in denial and unwilling to accept the fact I'm hurting. I need to go get help. Because that's, it's the, that's right. I'm a tough guy. Uh, but you've been pushing, pushing, pushing uh, throughout your whole life. Now, exactly. I, I, it's interesting, though, because you actually, with your sport, with your nutrition, and with the, the self-care that you did from that angle, I think you postponed the inevitable uh, for quite some time. I think a man who would have been less able to look after himself would have been much earlier coming to to the same the same point where your body says, you've got to be joking, skip. You've burnt a candle <laughs> on every bloody end and in the middle for the last 35 years. And now you still think that I'm happy as your subconscious. You have dealt with so much shit. Well, you actually didn't deal with so much shit in your life. <laughs> so, hey, you really think that we can't keep going like that? <laughs> I mean, God or the, the universe is saying, come on, this guy's joking, is he? <laughs> so, and I think that's the reality of this. Sooner or later, it bites us in the ass. Sooner right. or later, right. we have to face the music. And the face, the music means we have to deal with the trauma that we have accumulated in our lives. And some of us deal with it, unfortunately, with alcohol and drugs because our pain is so bad that we want to drown the, the yes. bloody thing uh, or numb it. And that is the, the story again and again. There's probably not one memoir of a soldier who has written down about his life where you don't have that period of, of, of PTSD slash marital, mm. marital breakdown and then drinking like a fish. Uh, mm. it's, it's sort of kind of a, a cliche, yet it is such a realistic thing. Now, what we see there is are the extremes, are the extremes of PTSD, the extremes of, of, of human suffering. And then you say, ah, oh, that's okay. I mean, no doubt his, his friend was blown up in front of his eyes. No surprise that he's an alcoholic. Guys, you don't need to be this extreme. Drama comes in any way, shape, and form. That's right. And it can hit you, and you don't even know that it's there. I keep telling about uh, about my my story where I was uh, attacked by a gang uh, when I was a teenager, and I ended up uh, quite beaten up, front teeth knocked out, uh, not nice. And there was, at one stage in that fight, there was a very clear chance that I could die. Uh, I did not. I, the, the knife went past me. I was lucky. And a month later, I started training martial arts. Mm. And I became quite a good fighter. And I became, I defined myself as a survivor, as a, hey, I'm aware. I'm aware. I know it. I have got this. And I was priding myself on my situation of awareness throughout my whole life. And it was only literally two years ago that I figured out 
what I call situational awareness was actually, thank you very much, PTSD, because I would wake up mm. three o'clock in the morning. Uh, I would not necessarily have flashbacks, but this constant high awareness. And I would, I would have flashbacks, but not necessarily of bad things. I would have flashbacks of where I said something nasty to someone. Mm. The reaction, however, that I got was like a massive punch in the gut. So I would mm. drive there and I would literally go like that. And my kids were saying, okay, what did you think of that? Um, and it was that kind wow. of exaggerated response. And I said, no, no, I just had a, had a bad thought there and, and brushed it off. I never added one and one and one together. I didn't recognize the PTSD that was staring in my face for since I was 13, essentially, um, up until two years ago. We are so good in not looking at ourselves. Here I am, a clinician. I've had, fuck's sake, how many times have I <laughs> diagnosed PTSD in someone else or depression, etc. in someone else? It's barn door. It's obvious. There you are, looking in the mirror. No, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> Boy, you just drank a whole bottle. You drank a liter of vodka last night. Yeah, and? Oh, Joe is much worse. He is much, much worse than me. So no, I'm fine here. Honestly, so here you are. I mean, that, I think the biggest kudos to you is that you had that insight, that you actually recognized what was happening to you then, because I didn't have that insight. I needed my wife to slap me around the ears and it admitted me to a rehab hospital um, mm. to, to actually make me see the light. And only then did I start that journey and what a wonderful journey it was. So I'm actually so, so pleased, so, so pleased that is, where, that is where I ended up. And for you to actually seek the help of a psychologist is, speaks volumes. Was that, I mean, you were working uh, as a doctor in your field. Did you feel that your career was at risk at that time? No. And, and at that point, it didn't matter to me. At, at, at that point, I, I knew I couldn't go on any longer. I was, I, was, I was beat up, beat down, and so battered that I, I knew I could not go on any longer like I was. That I was desperate. At that point, I was desperate. I, I felt like I was in this deep, dark pit where there was a long tunnel, my mind in a fog, my body exhausted, and I was slogging through a foot of mud and at this far away end of the tunnel, there was a little speck of light. That's how, that's how I felt. And I, I was, no, I, I just can't do this anymore. Uh, or as we talk about on, on the wrestling mat, here's this opponent that's so powerful that air, any move you try is, you, you, can't, you can't win with this opponent. And he has got you on your back. And there's nothing that works to get off your back. It's just too, too powerful. And that was what it was like. At this point, I, I, I just couldn't 
fight any longer on my own. I had exhausted all my reserves. I was desperate. I was desperate. And I was at that point, I spoke, uh, I, I, when I spoke to a psychologist, I described it as driving in your car through absolute darkness, an absolute dark street. Mm -hmm. And as you come by some houses, the door is just a little bit open, mm -hmm. just the tiniest bit, and you see a shimmer of some light, but not even a proper light, just a, just a glance that there might be some light there. That's mm -hmm. how I described it. So it's a very similar very similar feeling. It's this deep right. darkness that's, this was crushing my heart. A depression is such a bastard, it's such a, such a brutal, brutal feeling. Yes. And yes. You, know, you were so, uh, honestly, kudos to you that you could recognize it. Um, what was your wife at that time? Did she see that or did you, did you hide well, that from her? Well, it must have been that I hid a lot from her because in retrospect, she could see things as I started getting treatment, but it was yeah. insidious, you know, uh, progressive exactly. over time. Plus, my wife has always seen me as that strong, driven, push forward type of person. And uh, I think because of that image that I think again, those rose-colored glasses that she saw me through. I don't think that she could see that, um, how far down I had gotten. Plus, I, I didn't show that side really to even her, how poorly I felt and the fears I felt that I was fearful I'm suffering from new early onset dementia and my confidence is in the toilet and I can't hardly make a decision here and I'm feeling guilty about this and shameful about this and these thoughts are just battering me day and night. You don't deserve to be a colonel. You're a failure. You've let the army down. You've let your family down. Yep. And over and over, night after night, day after day, and you can imagine when it's its worst at nighttime, mm -hmm. everything's quiet. Or they're laying in bed and your wife is sound asleep and you're laying there bug-eyed Exactly. You know what? Three o'clock. No, three <laughs> you know o'clock. Three o'clock. Four o'clock in the morning, uh, and and it was it was bizarre. It was at one stage it was three. Sometimes it was four. But on the dot, it was not just within within a minute. It was nearly to a second. Four o'clock. Bing. Yes. And I had the recall of everything everything negative that has happened in the last 30, 40 years. It was there being just replaying like like something. And you think, what the heck? And it was just awful, awful, awful. But there you are, like, like you, I was hiding a lot of things. Um, was anger part of your depression? Was resentment part of your depression? Did you fly off the handle? Resentment, irritability. I could become irritable, and in retrospect, what my wife and I have learned that I become irritable when my anxiety is up. That that tends to be a manifestation of my anxiety more than anything. Um, the other you asked about was the um, 
anger and what was the other that you asked about the anger and and yeah it's anger that that i was very much uh anger was part of me and resentment right. these two yeah guys. resentment uh, yeah the resentment and interesting with resentment because i have spent a lot of time working on forgiveness over the years a lot of time and effort uh, as a christian and knowing that unforgiveness really hurts me but also uh, hurts god because mm. god says forgive and you shall be forgiven we pray it in the lord's prayer you know that uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others and all these things there so i've worked very diligently to forgive others and forgiveness is a choice and I understand that it's not, I feel this way, it's I choose to do this. But what I found, Stefan, was as, as my mood and as this depression progressed, these old resentments, these old slights, all these things just bubbled up to the surface. And I, they play over in my mind and over in my mind and over in my mind. I, I would journal, and I hadn't looked at that journal for many years, but then when I was writing my book, uh, I went back and I read some entries during those months, and they are so dark, and the mention of these slights, these hurts, these, when I've been rejected, and the bitterness that comes out, the it, I look at that and I think, wow, wow. I, I was amazed at what I was feeling and what was coming out of me during that time and how it was being manifested in what I was thinking over and over in my mind. Absolutely. And I had to deal with all of that as I went through the treatment of my depression again to work through those issues. It's exactly exactly what you needed to do, but obviously you you the God didn't send you the message clear enough. So you <laughs> needed you needed that kick in the balls to get down on the ground and actually admit that you're powerless. Uh, and isn't it amazing? This is exactly step one, two, and three of the 12-step program. You admit that you're powerless of what is occurring to you, and you realize that there is hope out there, and uh, that's exactly what you did. So that was uh, that is where it always amazes me that the 12-step program is actually such a sensible program. When you cut out all the, the things that are distracting, the references to God if you're a secular person, or the old language that comes from the fact that it's close to 100 years that, that the whole system of, of, of the AA was actually born and, 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 and created. So 
take away the old language, take away God, and you have got a, um, a system which looks at a failing business and how you would resuscitate a failing business or mm. someone who is struggling, how would you support this person, etc. So it's, it's, it's ultimately, it's very common sense. And here it strikes me so much because you're choosing without knowing, you're choosing exactly the same words um, that, that mm. helped you to realize what the problems were. Because once you had you had chosen, or once you recognized there was a problem and you you were you had the insight that there is help out there, you sought that help, then you took an inventory. You actually tried to figure out what was going on in your life. Then you worked on that. Then you're basically um, creating new habits. You refocus mm -hmm. on those things that are important that you know will make you better. And then down the line, you make sure that you're not falling off the wagon again. And then you're coming to a point where you actually say, wow, now I want to give back. Now it is time to write this book. And uh, there you are. This was a 12-step program that you have gone through <laughs> without knowing that you did. Yes, yes. So, so I've never heard anybody uh, put it uh, like yeah. in those terms. It is, That's amazing, the, 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 the parallels the, with that. Is it not? Is it not? Yes, but here you are. And yes. you're, but the most important bit now for you guys out there, obviously, there is a reason that you tuned in today, either because you have got the interest in the addiction and the alcohol, and that's sort of where I came from, or the, the issue of the depression and the, the mental health issue um, in, in a very strong person and who gets brought down to his knees uh, by it uh, was speaking volumes to you. Either way, what we want to show you here in this interview is that both Skip and I went through hell, but we got the help we needed, and we are now very different people. The new and improved versions, and right. however we defined ourselves, we are now enriched. There is no two ways around it, as if a new power was given to you, and that power of insight, that, that superpower of self-love, of actually accepting yourself for who you are, the person that has had all these problems and challenges in life. And no surprise, you have got the scars on the outside and on the inside to prove that. Mm -hmm. And But here we are now choosing to live a life that is meaningful, where we can turn around and actually say, yes, that shit has happened, but that doesn't define me. What defines right. me is how I respond to it. And that was so such a powerful thing in your book. Because your book, just show us. I know you've got the copy lying there. Show us your book. Indeed. Wrestling depression is not for wimps. And that's exactly right. And it's a beautiful, beautiful drawing, actually. When I saw that, I actually thought, oh, what's that? And I think that was the initial uh, hook where I thought, oh, mm -hmm. let's look uh, at that. And I think that... My the, brother actually drew that for me. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yes. Oh, he has got a skill, the man. Yes, um, he is. <laughs> so I think that the fact is that we all have our trials and tribulations. Yes. And we all are full of self-doubt, full of fear, at many times in our lives, full of shame and guilt. And it is 
oh, we have got this, this superb ability to put ourselves down and mm. kick ourselves when we are on the ground. Yes. And then pour some salt in our wounds whilst <laughs> we're on the ground. That's, that's what we do. We are beating <laughs> ourselves up. It's brutal. Yes, yes. It's brutal, brutal. And I think people like you are showing the world that it's okay to not be okay. It is important to realize that this is part of your life. And what is not okay is to hide it. What is not okay is to hide it from yourself mm-hmm. and say, no, everything is all right. I keep saying, guys, it is you will not find a simple Olympic athlete who hasn't got a performance coach. Uh, you will not find a, a, a top CEO who hasn't got a life coach, uh, or many of them in actual facts, to deal with various aspects of their lives. These are all psychologists. These are all uh, uh, professionals who have made it a job to learn how to bring out the best in people. Mm. So there you are, all the people that you look up to, they have got that. Yet here you are watching this show and thinking probably, psychologist, that's for loonies, or that's, 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 that makes me weak, <laughs> or that's, no, 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 they think it's all in my head. Well, a lot of it is actually in your head. <laughs> so you need, to, you need to realize that, guys. <laughs> and in your head can be either your best friend uh, when, it, when you have learned the lessons and you learned to live your life uh, in such a way that you are proud of it, um, everything included, not just some aspects of it like I did. I was very proud of being a doctor, very proud of my achievements there. And then as soon as he came to the real man in me, oh my God. So not this kind of schizophrenia, but actually truly, when you come to the point of loving yourself, what's and all, then this is such a freedom, such such an authentic living, but you don't have to live a lie anymore. And this is so powerful. Skip has been through that journey. So his book is exactly outlining his travel. And what I liked on your book is that you have got this this kind of uh, systematic way, similar to to my steps to sobriety. I tell a story, then uh, tell about the the, uh, the, the kind of, of, of lessons I've learned, and then I give an action plan or, or tips of how you might be wishing to go for it. And I've done that with the 12 steps and then with challenges that inevitably you will hit in your life, ranging from depression, anxiety, PTSD, to dealing with criticism, dealing with difficult situations, uh, those kind of things that maybe are not so easy to deal with. Uh, it's all in there, so check it out if that, if that tickles your fancy. But equally, if, if you want to, to look at it from the depression point of view, uh, Skip did a fantastic job of doing exactly that, telling a story, then describing what he has learned, and then giving you the key lessons in a beautiful, summarized way after each chapter. And uh, I was saying before the interview, this is exactly how my brain works. So you actually ticked all the boxes there. And I had, at times I had to smile to myself because ultimately, whilst we, we both come from different angles at mental health, the lessons that you describe 
and that I describe are virtually identical. And so therefore it's so beautiful. Yes. So guys, you could do far worse. I mean, as soon as Christmas, you know, what you do, you might as well read a book or two. So right. <laughs> skip, <laughs> there's Skip's book out there. There's my book out there. Don't be shy, make it clever. Give one as a gift to your wife, and then she can start reading one, you the other, and then you swap. There you go. Yeah. There you uh, go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, Skip, it is, it is, uh, you did a, did a fantastic job for coming out, so to speak, out of the cupboard. Um, because especially in, in a world which is dominated by type A personalities, uh, like in the military, the special forces especially, where everyone is out there. And same for doctors, same for nurses, paramedics, ambulance men, um, fire, police, first responders as such. We are all the same. We are not the, oh, let me cry with you. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry. When, when the, the metal meets the meat, you actually need to do something else than crying. You don't have time for, well, hopefully you have time for compassion in the right moment, uh, but not, you have to, to, to do action first. You have to do the right action so that you can survive. The moment you, you know when, when, you're, when you're suddenly in an ambush, the worst thing you can do is nothing. The, the best thing you uh, the, the the next best thing is maybe something and then the next thing is you do you have a standard operating procedure you get out of this ambush as quick as possible with maximum force against the the, the guys lay down covering fire and get the fuck out of there that's how you survive so you take action and that is so important it is that kind of that kind of of attitude that is so important so guys it is you have a life to live and you need to recognize that the negative emotions are there mm -hmm. yes you have times when you need to be the staunch alpha male who kicks ass but if you're only that then you're setting yourself up to fail and That's it's right. just a matter of time until you break down until you crumble and i think that is the important bit so uh, unfortunately we are probably preaching to the choir here because those people who should listen to that lesson uh, are probably not listening to it so <laughs> <laughs> so there's one problem <laughs> but no it is hopefully those of you who have listened maybe you can start spreading the word maybe you can say hey yes. these two numbnuts got their act together and darling um uh, maybe you should listen to that. Maybe that is just something, you know, spread the word. Just there will be people who need to listen to that, who need to, to learn that lesson in life. And hopefully before it's too late, hopefully before they're at rock bottom, um, it, it would be nice. And that's, that's, I guess, why we are so transparent, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, fantastic. I, Please skip. I, I, would echo things that you're saying upon that even tough guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. can get depressed. Absolutely. And you're not a wimp if you go seek help. No. Don't well, take one more day and suffer in silence. Go get help. Exactly. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your family. 
and you owe it to your friends and your community. Go get help. And I want to also put in a plug for Stefan's book there. And reading it, and so many parallels with mine. In fact, the day he was in rehab, I think, was the 7th of March, 2014. Huh? <laughs> little, just a little over a month before I went inside help. And so many of the things I'm reading parallel my own experiences he has mentioned. It gives you a great tour de force of alcoholism, denial, and the impact of alcohol on your body and brain, and how his life fell apart and his experience in rehab. I'm reading it and it's made me relive some things because I had a son, I have a son who's had a drug and alcohol problem for well over 20 years from the time he was a young teenager. Thank goodness he's he's been abstinent now for two and a half years. Wow. But we've been to those rehab programs. And so the idea of the intake and the denial and sneaking drugs in. So you hear the stories afterwards and you find out, oh yeah, dad, so-and-so brought drugs in. Yeah, we were using, you know, we were having a, a party. We were all sharing. And I'm thinking, oh, brother, you know, they, he was just there because the judge said he had to go there. You know, uh, 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 that, that type of thing. But I'm looking at the parallels thinking, whoa. But again, men, especially, but women that are listening to you ain't no men, or you may be struggling. You don't have to struggle one more day. Go get help. Pick up the phone, call and say, I need an appointment. And please, 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 if you are struggling with suicide, call that suicide prevention hotline or go to your nearest emergency room. Do not, do not ever feel that you are alone. You are never, never, never alone. I could not agree more. Skip, these are the perfect words to finish this interview, but these are also the perfect words to live your life by because there are moments that are very dark and you are not alone, honestly. You are one phone call away from help and yes. I think it's so important. It is in an ideal world, I would have all kind of helplines now listed, but because we are worldwide in our podcast here and our YouTube channel, uh, it's impossible for me to, to give you everything in your country uh, and every country that listens to this. So please, I think uh, the simplest way is if you want help and you do not have immediately a source, just Google. The moment you Google actually uh, suicide helpline, it will automatically come with uh, the helpline in your area and will come up with a number of varieties. So it is, uh, and there is so much help out there. It doesn't matter if you're LGBTQ, uh, if you are a, a veteran, if you are uh, completely unrelated, uh, domestic violence, it does not matter what it is. Right. There are people who are out there who have, like you, been in these places and who are now helping others because they have been there, they have found solutions that work. You are not alone. That's right. Skip, 
I'm so humbled and, and honored to have you had uh, to have had you on my show. Thank you so much for your time, for your passion, and thank you for writing this book and giving us uh, an alpha male insight in your life uh, and having then the humbleness, uh, the humility to actually describe what happened to you and how you mm -hmm. got better. You guys out there, look after yourself and have a fantastic life. Make the most out of it. Make every second count. Bye.